This is The Guardian. Hi there. This might not be what you're expecting. This is a bonus episode of a new podcast from The Guardian called Weekend. It's being released every Saturday. So if you like it, make sure to subscribe. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up... Columnist Marina Hyde looks at why the Tory government has allowed oligarchs to use London as a playground. Writer Zoe Williams sits down with Black Mirror creator Charlie Brooker. Columnist Annie Lord explores the pros and cons of the linguistic minefield that is the voice note. And Luke Winky examines the rise and fall of the crime queen of Bitcoin. Before we jump in, a quick warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. First, as Russia invaded Ukraine this week, there were some uncomfortable questions for the Conservative government in the UK about their relationship with Russian money. Here, Marina Hyde muses as to why the Tories had indulged oligarchs for so long. Read by Emma Stannard. If I look out of the window as I'm writing this, I can see the grand, stuccoed Russian embassy in London, which some years ago mounted a large screen on the wall outside, on which it likes to broadcast its frequently obnoxious Twitter feed to passers-by. If I look at the television screen in the room in which I'm sitting, I can see a despairing Ukrainian woman throwing her broken windows from her apartment building in the aftermath of a shelling. So yes, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. This afternoon, when I walk down to the opticians, I will pass some large, unconvincingly spontaneous graffiti that recently appeared on someone else's wall. It reads, There is no Russian interference in elections. (laughs) Kids, eh? Next, I will pass two vast houses that I know to be owned by oligarchs one of whom is Roman Abramovich and two others that are heavily rumoured to be. Some of these properties are on a street that also hosts various ambassadorial residences and they are therefore protected obligingly around the clock by multiple armed British police officers. Just a tiny snapshot from a London that is uniquely placed to hurt Russia's richest and most powerful the class who could ultimately help decide how long Vladimir Putin sticks around. Yet London continues to pull its punches. In a mirthless sort of way, I enjoyed Boris Johnson thundering on Thursday that oligarchs in London will have nowhere to hide. (laughs) Righto. That same morning, Andrei Guriev, the reported owner of Wittenhurst, London's second largest house after Buckingham Palace, could be seen on telly at Putin's meeting of the oligarchs in the Kremlin. Not a great hiding place, 
But then perhaps Andre knows the seeker is so quarter-assed he doesn't actually need one. London's fight against oligarchs reminds me a lot of Russia's fight against doping in sports. Some real through-the-looking-glass stuff. Anyway, I say that Guriev is the reported owner of Wittenhurst because even that simple fact remains extraordinarily difficult to establish, to say nothing of more controversial information. For so many of these Russian persons of interest, the internet management alone is a full-time job. But then, there are so very many full-timers. In a few weeks, you will be able to buy the brilliant Oliver Bullough's new book, Butler to the World, in which he details how the UK became the servant of some of the world's worst individuals. To help the oligarchs, the kleptocrats and the gangsters, Londongrad boasts a whole humming, interconnected, professional class of reality launderers specifically designed to service them. Lawyers and lobbyists and education consultants and all sorts of others who imagine themselves to work for respectable businesses. But don't. I thought of them when I read an article by Marta Shakalo, editor of the BBC's Ukrainian service, written in the hours after the invasion began on Thursday. She described hearing the explosions in Kiev and later getting her 10-year-old son up and dressed. We had some breakfast, sitting as far from the windows as we could, she wrote. But he was so scared he vomited. Reading this yesterday before supper with my own children, I felt such a deep, painful sympathy for her. There is no one working to launder reality for her child. There is no army of sharp-suited professionals lavishing painstaking hours on making all the bad stuff go away for Ukrainian children, two of whom were reportedly killed in the past 24 hours by Russian strikes on civilian targets. It is their misfortune, their tragedy, to live at the sharp end of Vladimir Putin's wickedness, while the mega-rich who exist in grotesque symbiosis with the Russian president have their every rough edge smoothed off, in this capital they most adore to call home. Or, as Bullough now asks, why are we preferring Russian oligarchs over Ukrainian kids? Why indeed? I don't want to go out on a limb here, but Britain's professed attempt to deter Putin with sanctions was arguably hindered by not imposing any even remotely irksome sanctions until after he'd actually invaded Ukraine. Less stop or we'll shoot, more shoot or we'll stop. For so long now, the urgency and gravitas that successive governments have brought to this problem are epitomised by Gavin Williamson's comment that Russia should go away and should shut up. That, you might recall, came in the wake of Putin deploying a nerve agent on our soil. Even now, just typing those words is a proper mind melt. Not one month before, the wife of Putin's former deputy finance minister had successfully bid £30,000 at a Tory party fundraiser to have dinner with Williamson at the Churchill War Rooms. Indeed, this same woman, Lubov Chernukin, has spent a fortune buying time with politicians, including £160,000 to play tennis with David Cameron and Boris Johnson. The year after Salisbury, she paid £135,000 for a night out with Theresa May. I know, I know, second prize was two nights out with Theresa May. 
We've even seen a picture of this soiree, thanks to trigger-happy Instagrammer Liz Truss, who came along for the fun, along with several other senior Tory women. The future Foreign Secretary genuinely captioned the picture, and it's ladies' night, hashtag cabinet and friends, hashtag girl power, as one fellow attender fumed of Truss. She'd dropped them in it for the sake of a few likes which sounds like the words of someone who'd prefer that their money-grubbing and influence-peddling happened in secret. In London grad, of course, they would be in positively multitudinous company. As Putin closes in physically on Ukraine's capital, our own capital has yet to properly instigate a reckoning with itself. Instead, the people with power to hit his cronies where it hurts still prefer to just shut up and go away. That was columnist Marina Hyde and what she thinks of the UK's connection to Russian money. Read by Emma Stannard. As Charlie Brooker releases the latest fruits of his new Megabucks deal with Netflix, an interactive cartoon about a cat, the Black Mirror creator talks to Zoe Williams about gaming, nuclear war, and why his generation has wrecked the UK. This piece is read by Oliver Cudbill. Charlie Brooker is sitting at a desk, a big cardboard box in the background, miscellany spilling out of bookshelves. What you can't see, he says, since we're on Zoom, is all the shit all over my desk. I'm shambolic. He got his first gig doing a comic strip when he was 15 for 80 quid a week. He dropped out of Westminster University as the only dissertation he wanted to write was on video games and scrambled into a career in journalism. There was no planning, I wasn't somebody who was out hustling, via working in a shop and writing video game reviews. He shifted via screen wipe, game swipe, new swipe, and weekly wipe into screenwriting and achieved astonishing success with the anthology series Black Mirror. His production company with Annabelle Jones, Broke and Bones, has just been bought by Netflix for an unspecified sum. The rumour is that it's so enormous that, well, I had to get out a calculator to work out what nine figures over five years means. A hundred million dollars. I just can't wrap my head around why he still has Billy bookcases from Ikea. He treats this question respectfully, as is his nature. There's a very deep courtesy under all the swearing. Check your Ikea catalogue. They're not Billy. They're Kallax. Isn't it ironic... I ask later, that he started a company called Broke and Bones, which he then sold for all the money in the world. It's not like they go, here's a pile of money for you, he explains. It's more like, that's an investment for you to make things. Also, I'm so clueless on the business side of things. Probably, if you look at the paperwork, I'm going to get paid in rice. His first project since signing the new Netflix deal is Cat Burglar, a quirky idea and not at all what you'd expect. At heart, it's a love letter to animators, Tex Avery and Chuck Jones and the golden age of cartoon making, Wiley Coyote and all that. Not only are the visuals and the sound extremely evocative, extremely true to time, he says, the visual gags, the pace and the anarchy, those hold up today. You get hit by a broom, you smash into a door or your skin falls off or whatever. They tend to be quite physical and brutal. They're not really about dialogue. So a cat is trying to break into a museum 
for a priceless artwork and a dopey dog is trying to stop him, except there's a twist. Every few minutes, questions will flash up that you have to answer with your remote. Almost like a pub trivia quiz machine, he says. It might be words you'd associate with the 90s or which film won the Oscar. Getting them right or wrong affects the outcome, so you're controlling the luck of the character rather than the decisions they're making, if that makes any sense. It takes about 15 minutes to get to the end, but you can cycle through hundreds of possible permutations. It's a curious experiment, he says dispassionately, and I can't quite work out how it'll be received. It's not aimed at children, although the idea was it's not necessarily massively off-putting to children. You'll never hear him do a hard sell, even about a show he's actively selling. He has a, a lab boffin, it might work, it might not tone, an experimenter at the frontiers of telly. Is it a game? Is it a show? Would it work better on a console? Brooker has been interested in interactivity for ages. If there's a message to the viewer in Cat Burglar, he says it's, you do your bit, mate, don't just sit there. His first foray was Black Mirror, Bandersnatch, in 2018, also for Netflix. This was where he discovered that he could work with the platform without it sticking its oar in. That was their first big interactive drama. It was an expensive proposition, risky, difficult. They wrote loads of code to make it work. Looking back, why didn't they want something like a Bond movie? This was very niche. It's about someone writing a game in his head on a spectrum. The biggest set piece was him walking into WH Smith in 1984. It would have been easy for Netflix to say, could you set this in America, make it a Tandy computer and make it more like War Games starring Matthew Broderick? Can it be a bit more glamorous? There was none of that. Bandersnatch is incredibly atmospheric, haunting even. From a technical point of view, I was satisfied, Brooker says, again, quite dispassionately. But originally, he wanted it to be like an escape room with a puzzle at the centre which the viewer would solve by repeatedly failing each failure delivering another digit in a phone number. The problem was, and this is a damning indictment of humankind, people couldn't remember a five-digit number for more than five seconds. So we had to take that out, which basically meant that you weren't quite sure when it had finished. He takes gaming incredibly seriously, still plays massive 55-hour games, hates the word gamer. It's infantilizing, isn't it? You wouldn't call yourself a filmer and is always just bewildered by the skill and intelligence that's gone into a game. The underpinning philosophy of gaming seems to have permeated his approach to life. Try everything. Failure is at least half the point, and maybe the most interesting half. It's a cute paradox that this attitude has begat a huge amount of success that he tends to shrug off. I have a strange attitude to success, he says. It's like going to an award ceremony. If you don't win, it's a bit of a waste of an evening. If you win, it's nice, but it's also sort of meaningless. He's like an inverted Samuel Beckett. Ever tried? Ever succeeded? No matter. Try again. Succeed again. Succeed better. Before he was Mr. Interactive, Charlie Brooker was Mr. Dystopia, creating disturbing, prescient vistas of the very near future. What if the Prime Minister had to have sex with a pig live on air? What if anxious modern parenting turned into 24-hour hyper-surveillance? Even Nathan Barley, his 2005 comedy, co-written with Chris Morris, came eerily to pass. That eponymous portfolio-careered hipster could have been written yesterday. That makes me sound like a wrestler, Brooker says, 
not without satisfaction, a really mean, horrible wrestler. Here he comes in the blue corner, Mr. Dystopia. It's not so much that he predicted things and then they happened, he says. Rather, Black Mirror plots were extrapolations of whatever was already happening. The pig plot was inspired by Gordon Brown's Gillian Duffy moment when he called a Labour voter a bigoted woman and had to go and apologise and it became this bizarre circus of calamity. I was just watching it thinking, no one's in charge here. Brooker is 50. Growing up near Reading in the 70s and 80s, he had, in common with a lot of us, a powerful terror of nuclear apocalypse, coupled with the more idiosyncratic phobia of vomiting, which he has to this day. He drolly describes the way these fears combined in his childhood mind. The thing that terrified me more than anything else was that if you survived the blast, you got radiation sickness. Oh no, there's a bomb that would give me a bad tummy. I wasn't really thinking about the big picture. In that context, he remembers taking comfort from shows such as Spitting Image, thinking that if the adults are joking about it, it'll probably be okay. Then, on 2016 Screen Wipe, we had some jokes about Trump, who'd just been elected and started casually talking about a nuclear bomb. I was in that position as the adult, being funny and reassuring, but I was shitting myself. Rumbling, amorphous anxieties continue to plague him, but always laced with this sense of the absurd that keeps him, well, more than sane, happy. In the UK, because I've been known for writing acerbic columns and comedies, people know that I'm not taking myself that seriously. Then I get to the US and they think I'm the king of dystopia, but still in my head it's all the same stuff. Comedy horror and sci-fi are such close bedfellows. He's sick of one thing though. The jokes should have stayed on the screen. Or the page. They should never have migrated to politics. It is bizarre that we've got Keith Lemon running the country. We've got a character, a shit comedy character, running the country. And we let that happen. Our generation let that happen. They are us. They're our peers. Fucking hell. An interactive drama in which you can rid politics of ludicrous empty characters. That I would watch or play forever. That was Charlie Brooker, Mr. Dystopia, That Makes Me Sound Like a Wrestler, by Zoe Williams. Read by Oliver Cudbill. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, voice notes are not a new phenomenon, but over the last few years, they have suddenly become ubiquitous, straddling the convenience of text and the intimacy of conversation. But in this next piece, dating columnist Annie Lord asks, where will it end? Read by Emma Stannard. I lay on my bedroom carpet looking at the blue of the ceiling, feeling like I was in a teen movie. My phone buzzed and I picked it up to respond to my crush's last text. Except this time, it wasn't a text, but a voice note. 
a short audio file you send via Facebook, Instagram or WhatsApp. It was the first time I'd heard his voice. It was flat, low and attractive. He asked me how my day had gone. My stomach fluttered because I knew this meant he wanted to get closer to me. Yet I also freaked out because there was so much pressure to get my response right. At first, I ignored the switch in communication and started typing out a message because I hate my voice. The way I can hear my nerves prickle through my speech, the high pitch of my intonation and the number of times I say like. But don't voice notes feel so much more intimate? Hearing the subtleties of the other person's speech, as if they were whispering in your ear. And I wanted to get closer to him. So I focused on getting comfy and pushed the record button. In response to his, how was your day? I started telling him about the bike I had just got. It hurt so much on your vulva, I only lasted about 10 minutes before I limped off. His response was awkward. Yeah, I can't say much about um, women's engineering down there. The seats are probably built for a male anatomy. Wow, <laughs> say that again, I replied in another voice note, in a mock, sultry voice. He didn't reply. I recorded another note. I didn't actually think you were being sexual then, I began, a slight breathlessness hanging off each word. I was joking, because you sounded so formal, you know? On and on I went. It was excruciating. I should have deleted the recording, but I was so panicked I forgot I could do that. I imagined him raising his eyebrows on the other end of the line, playing my note back to his friends, laughing at me. In a last-ditch attempt to salvage the unsalvageable, I changed the subject. Do you like Drake's new album? Oh, it was clumsy, obvious, and from then on, he ignored me. This recent encounter will forever remind me why I'm better off texting. Like most 20-something Gen Zs, I hate phone calls with their awkward silences and long, drawn-out endings. Yeah, speak soon, good to chat, bye, love you, yeah, bye, 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 bye. But whether I use voice notes or not, among my peers, they are becoming ever harder to avoid. When WhatsApp introduced them in 2013, receiving a voice note felt like a novelty, something more human in a sea of emojis and abbreviations. Now, around 200 million are sent every month. Instead of a simple I'll meet you outside the station, text. Friends now send long rambles about how they were going to catch such and such train, but they realised the bus would drop them outside. And while they were on the bus, they thought about this idea for a novel. It's like having to sit through an unedited podcast. Twitter has introduced a voice note feature, as have dating apps Hinge, Bumble and Happen. Last month, dating website String launched with the tagline Date with your voice. In 2018, American singer Charlie Puth felt passionate enough about voice notes to name an album after them. And on her latest release, 30, Adele took this tribute a step further by including voice notes from her son, Angelo, in the track My Little Love. Yet for something seemingly so inoffensive, voice notes are incredibly divisive. 
One friend calls them the worst thing to happen to communications since the scene receipt on Messenger. Another, who pushes a pram, says they're indispensable. They are beloved of younger generations, but older family members seem to find them baffling. Social media comments range from mundane observations like the Twitter user who got 142.6 thousand likes for pointing out how often she ends a voice note with, so yeah, to more impassioned rants on voice note etiquette. For voice note fan, model and digital editor Maddie Reed, who is 23 and who sends 10 to 50 a day over WhatsApp, much of their appeal lies in how efficient they are to send, particularly when you're on the move. It's like a phone call, except you don't have to rely on both parties being free at the same time. Text messages don't convey emotional nuance in the same way a voice note can, Maddie says. If you're broaching a sensitive topic, a lot can get lost in translation over text. That's why if I'm cancelling a date or telling a friend something tricky or anything else that could be misconstrued, I will almost always do it via voice notes so the other person can hear how I'm actually feeling. Reed is right to think voice is a more reliable way to express oneself than text. Silke Paulman of Essex University's psychology department says, Vocal cues alone can communicate our internal state, emotions, attitudes, motivations, without the need for additional words. When we hear people talk, she says, any discrepancies such as someone who insists they're fine but doesn't really sound fine can be picked up within a couple of milliseconds, forcing the listener to re-evaluate the message. So if cancelling a date via voice note, the other person would be able to decipher from the tone whether the speaker really is busy or losing interest. Whereas with a something's come up text, it is harder to work out the sender's true feelings, especially if it includes kisses, emojis and multiple characters. I'm so sorry to warm up the mood of the message. This is less of an issue with older generations who tend to interpret text messages at face value. If someone replies, OK, they assume it means they're actually OK. Whereas a person my age, I'm 26, is more likely to think the brevity of the response means the sender is annoyed. Voice notes bypass the slightly exhausting code of texting etiquette that can make it a minefield. Of course, voice notes are not just a text substitute. Increasingly, people use them instead of the traditional phone call. They give you authority, says Pullman. In a normal conversation, you might have little control over how often you get your voice heard. The other person could talk on at you for minutes and unless you felt comfortable interrupting, you'd end up just listening. Real conversations are more fluid and prone to changes. If the other person shows no interest in what you are saying, for example, but voice notes protect you from that. This may explain why the majority of people who send me voice notes are women. It gives them an avenue to speak in the same way men do, without fear of being cut off or dismissed. But not everyone likes having that much power over an interaction. According to Bernie Hogan, a senior research fellow at the Oxford Internet Institute, it is the one-sidedness without important social cues that makes voice notes a challenge for some people. During phone calls, we modify our tone and the content of our conversation according to the feedback we get from the people we're talking to, he says. 
In the absence of that feedback, we must work hard to think about the person on the other end of the phone. For some people, that comes very easily. Others don't care. But a third group get very self-conscious about having to ad-lib on the spot. I get immensely self-conscious ad-libbing on the spot, but I still prefer phone calls to voice notes because at least the other person can chime in with experiences that resonate with what I'm saying. I like being able to hear them mmming in a way that expresses sympathy. I feel totally at sea without these cues and begin to doubt the content of what I'm talking about. Do they want me to wrap up the story or does it need more detail to be interesting? It's what happened when I was sending voice notes to that guy I liked. I worry I'm making the other person listen to something that they would rather avoid. It makes me paranoid that I'm wasting someone's time, agrees voice note sceptic Issy Gladstone, photographer who is 23. She likens the feeling of sending a voice note to making a point in a university seminar. I just want to get out what I'm saying as quickly as possible. But then there are these other people, usually men, who go on these long tangents for five minutes which don't have anything to do with the question because they feel they have the space to do it. I don't feel I have the space. There's something quite self-indulgent about thinking people care to listen to you talking for a long time. Indeed, any length of time, without interruption. You don't know where that other person is, they might have to put earphones in to listen, and when they finally get sorted, you might just be saying, oh, oh, sorry, one sec, just in the shop. Uh, Yeah, Rizzlers, please. The blue ones. Voice note devotee Reed reassures me that it's not about loving the sound of my own voice and uses the fact that she doesn't listen back to them as proof of this. But if she doesn't want to listen to her own notes, isn't that proof of something else? That no one likes listening to voice notes in the first place? I normally hate the sound of my own voice, though this often changes when alcohol is involved. Recently, I came back from a night out and I was lying on my bed, trying and failing to persuade myself to stop scrolling on my phone and take my makeup off before I passed out. Somewhere between the Prosecco haze and the inability to use my fingers properly, I started sending voice notes. One to my friend about the guy at the gym who seems to treat the place like a social club, another to my mum about what I want for my birthday, then another three to people I barely speak to anymore. I told Gladstone about this experience and she confessed to sending out drunken voice notes too. The other night I sent about seven to all my friends and in the morning I unsent all the ones which hadn't been played yet because I couldn't bear people listening to them. If I like sending voice notes when I'm drunk, when I'm feeling more self-assured, perhaps it's not the voice note I have a problem with, but my own confidence in what I have to say. Either way, I need to learn to love voice notes because ever more variations of them are being developed. Hogan thinks the next big thing will be features that allow us to sound like someone else, say Bugs Bunny or Britney Spears, like a filter but on sound rather than image. Reed says her main reasons for using voice notes is fostering closeness with people I don't get to see. With a fake voice, you'd no longer hear the ripple of nerves as they talked about a job interview or the high-pitched squeal as they recalled a great date. In that case, I'd probably send one. Clumsy flirting as told by Brittany. It might just work. That was How Voice Notes Killed the Phone Call 
by Annie Lord. Read by Emma Stannard. Finally, this week, in this rather curious case of the TikToker, YouTuber, economic columnist and amateur rapper, Luke Winkie tries to get an answer to the conundrum facing the US Department of Justice. Who is Heather Morgan? Read by Oliver Cudbill. Heather Morgan is free. For now. The 31-year-old fraudster was offered bail on Valentine's Day, releasing her from incarceration while her husband, Ilya Dutch Liechtenstein, remains in federal bondage. Morgan is at the centre of a psychedelic cryptocurrency saga that began when the pair were arrested on suspicion of laundering $4.5 billion worth of stolen Bitcoin. That money was originally pilfered from a Hong Kong-based crypto exchange firm called Bitfinex, and it breaks the record for the most digital currency that's ever been seized by a criminal sting operation. The pair allegedly spent the money on NFTs, gold and a Walmart gift card. It's the first major crime saga of the Web3 era. Blockchain noir, right for a Safdie Brothers film. And each twist in the storyline is more implausible than the last. But who is this Bitcoin crime queen? And what does she tell us about the future of organised crime and the stark new inequalities that it might create? The money that Morgan and Liechtenstein are accused of laundering was originally pilfered six years ago and honestly, it's a minor miracle that the Department of Justice was capable of digging it up in the first place as crypto is notoriously difficult to recover. So far, they've seized $3.6 billion. So, if you're already the sort of person who might be seduced by the grifter's lifestyle, cryptocurrency is a natural hideout point. Everything about this case is more evidence of the worryingly psychotropic texture our monetary system has taken on in 2022. A year when late-night hosts are dropping thousands of dollars on cartoon apes and YouTube prankster Logan Paul is making $20 million per boxing match. It is hard to articulate how it feels to be alive in an age of massive wealth disparity and multiple deregulatory lines of questionable crypto minting. But I think watching an alleged Bitcoin embezzler struggle through painful rap bars in a flat build cap that reads zero fucks is a good summation of the overwhelming confusion. Let's begin with the many layers of Heather Morgan's business portfolio. It turns out that when the crime queen of Bitcoin is not conducting her digital heists, she's also an ascendant TikToker, a self-help YouTuber, an economic columnist, and most impressively, an amateur rapper. The alias she uses for her artistic ventures? Razzlecan. After her arrests, the world was briefly subsumed by Razzlecan's mesmerising public brand, as reporters around the world splunked through the tranches of content left behind in Morgan's wake. In one memorable music video, she gallivants through Wall Street in John Lennon's sunglasses and a leopard print scarf ready for a fight. I've got pallid blood. I'm a real risk taker. She rhymes in the shadow of a bronze George Washington statue. There's also a 14-minute YouTube soliloquy where Razzlecan doles out higher education advice. I'm not trust fund, she says. My parents both work for the government. I've been totally broke and homeless. Money in my mind comes, goes. Sometimes you have it and sometimes you don't. 
She makes no reference as to the exact nature in which she found herself with money. Morgan was upfront about her financial avarice in a column she wrote for Inc. magazine in 2021 entitled, Four First-Time Founder Mistakes to Avoid at All Costs. Morgan asks readers to remember that your desire to hustle should never run dry. The first million dollars in revenue is so exciting, she wrote, but once you hit that, you're thinking about how to get to $5 million, $10 million, and suddenly $100 million. At one point, she asks her viewers to consider a goal and find the easiest path to achieve it. Pinned to the top of her Twitter page is a quote that is erroneously attributed to Winston Churchill. You have enemies. Good. That means you've stood up for something in your life. It is unsurprising that Morgan surfaced within the burgeoning blockchain underground. She embodies a ubiquitous type in the world of crypto. The chronically posting, hustle entrepreneur who has consolidated every available publicity stunt and duplicitous business undertaking within reach to brute force a hollow, demi-influencer's subsistence. To think that those music videos might have been funded by freshly laundered crypto credit is ghoulishly predictable. The couple is a perfect synecdoche for everything anyone doesn't like about an attention economy in which anything can be financialized, argues Vice in their investigation into her rap career. Unsurprisingly, this week also brought news that Netflix was already hard at work on a docuseries about the couple. Who knows? Maybe Razzle Khan is destined to become the next Tiger King. Heather Morgan and Dutch Liechtenstein have not pleaded guilty. Their defence attorney has taken an adversarial stance in the proceedings thus far, claiming that the government's case is thin. So perhaps normalcy will return, justice will be served, and the world can breathe easy knowing that a mediocre rapper and her husband are not capable of participating in the largest crypto heist in human history. But for now, we do not have that privilege. And I think that's why everyone keeps tumbling down the Razzlecan rabbit hole. The lasting legacy of Morgan and Liechtenstein may be that they've killed the image we hold of a criminal kingpin in our heads. It's been a long time since the mob ran New York City, in part because traditional organised crime, with its body counts, turf wars and punitive sentencing measures, is far too risky for the expected gains. In their stead, we have received a generation of crypto-eccentrics who have moved operations to the Arctic regions of the American economy. The blockchain was always going to attract the most unbridled dreamers of the population, and now we are watching one of them morph into a supervillain dressed in leather pants and a flight jacket, calling themselves the Turkish Martha Stewart in some of the worst hip-hop ever recorded. As we get deeper into our uncertain metaversal future, I expect that the rise and fall of figures like Morgan will become increasingly common. There are so many skeletons lingering in the closets of Manhattan high-rises, especially the ones lined with Bitcoin. That was Is This the New Face of Organised Crime? Decoding Razzlecan, the rapping Bitcoin fraudster by Luke Winkie. Read by Oliver Cudville. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. The articles were read by Oliver Cudbill and Emma Stannard and presented by me, Savannah Ayode greaves 
This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening.